Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, a podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm an investigative journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are economists, scientists, politicians, academics and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic and ecological crises that we face today. And they reveal their solutions to mitigate the damage to our future. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. This week's guest is economic anthropologist Jason Hickel. And Jason joined me to discuss degrowth and eco-socialism. Now, what I absolutely loved about speaking with Jason is that he provides a, <laughs> he provides a framework for a future that doesn't turn us all into farmers, which is great to hear as somebody that doesn't know how to farm. He really lays out that there are models that we can implement and there are policies that we can implement that can not only bring our consumption within the planetary boundaries and stop the overshoot that we're currently facing, but increase quality of life, access to healthcare, access to education, and also lift the 60% of the world that are currently living in poverty into a lifestyle of human dignity. You know, I joke about the farming thing, but I think this is so important because essentially he is saying that a post-carbon world not only provides hope for the future for, you know, those of us living in the West, but it can be used to align all of the social justice and environmental and labor policies to create a better future for humankind globally, for the planet, for biodiversity, to combat these crises that we currently face. We get into the nitty gritty of renewables and how viable they are, the policies and how to implement them. And we also discuss the power structures that are currently in place that are really trying to keep this discourse out of the mainstream. There is so much to learn in this episode. I really hope you enjoy it as much as I did. If you do, please share it far and wide. If you love it, do consider taking out a paid subscription over at planetcritical.com to support the podcast. You can also support Planet Critical on Patreon, and the transcripts of each interview are available to both paid subscribers on planetcritical.com and on the Patreon page. A huge thank you to the Planet Critical community who support this project and make this work possible. First of all, thank you so much for making time for, for me and for Planet Critical. It's a real honor to have you on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Well, I hope uh, I hope to do your work justice. <laughs> so you are kind of one of the leaders in degrowth. Um, you've written a book about it. You've written a couple of books about it, and you're extremely sort of active on Twitter about the policies that need to be implemented, about the dangers of capitalism. And I read through a couple of your pieces um, last night and this morning. I haven't had a chance to read your book yet, by the way, and I do apologize for that. Um, and I mean, I kind of want to start with, like, if you could give an introduction to degrowth for anyone that might not have heard it, and then we'll sort of go from there and swing into fossil fuels as quickly as possible. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So degrowth is, uh, it's a pretty straightforward idea. The idea basically is that, um, is, is first to recognize that uh, we live in uh, an era of ecological crisis uh, driven by excessive levels of energy and resource use. And... Uh, the reason that high levels of energy use are a problem is because, uh, is because it makes it more difficult for us to decarbonize the economy in time to stay under 1.5 degrees, right? And the reason the resource use, the excess resource use is a problem is because it's driving all sorts of other ecological pressures, such as, um, you know, deforestation and uh, biodiversity collapse and et cetera, et cetera. Effectively, the other planetary boundaries, aside from climate change, are being affected by excess resource use. 
And the key thing to recognize is that rich countries are overwhelmingly responsible for driving this crisis, right? They have extremely high levels of per capita energy use, extremely high levels of per capita resource use, vastly in excess of what is required to meet human needs, even at a high standard, right? Mm. So effectively, in light of this, what degrowth calls for is for rich countries to actively scale down their use of the planet's energy and resources um, in order to bring the economy back into balance with the living world in a safe, just, and equitable way. Uh, and it's very straightforward, actually, in terms of practical application. <laughs> Basically, in our existing economy, um, we assume that all sectors of the economy uh, must grow every year, all the time, regardless of whether or not we actually need them to. And what degrowth scholarship simply points out is that we should have a more rational approach to thinking about economic production. So let's think about what sectors we actually need to expand or improve, things like renewable energy capacity or public transportation networks or uh, public healthcare access, things like that. And then what sectors of the economy are clearly too big, uh, destructive, socially less necessary, and should be scaled down, right? So things like production of SUVs and private jets and uh, fast fashion, you know, arms, mm. the practice of planned obsolescence where products are built uh, basically in a way that's designed uh, to break down so that you have to buy new ones and increase product turnover and corporate profits and so on. Basically, there are huge chunks of the economy that are organized not around human need uh, or around human well-being, but rather around um, maximizing corporate profits and corporate power and elite accumulation. And so the observation here is that with a discriminating approach to how the economy works, we can scale down excess production. And the power of that is that it dramatically reduces energy use, mm -hmm. um, which is important because the less energy we use, the faster we can transition to renewables and decarbonize the economy uh, to stay under 1.5 degrees. And uh, scaling down production also obviously reduces resource use, which um, uh, removes pressure from all other planetary boundaries and allows ecosystems to regenerate. So it's very powerful. And um, the exciting thing here is that we know from empirical research and modeling that we can do this while at the same time improving people's lives, right? Improving social indicators. So it's possible to, uh, yeah, to improve social outcomes in rich countries while at the same time quite dramatically scaling down resource and energy use. We know that if we are to organize the economy around uh, human needs and provisioning and livelihoods, rather than around elite accumulation, we can meet human needs at a very high standard with a fraction of the energy and resources that high-income nations presently use. So it's extremely exciting um, as, uh, as a research field. It's extremely exciting in terms of the policy options um, and in terms of what can be achieved in terms of, uh, in terms of ecological um, objectives and regeneration. Let's get into the renewables part of it, because obviously at the moment, um, the, the main call around the world is for economies or nations to green their economy and to switch to renewables. But of course, the problem with renewables is, A, they require much more in terms of minerals and materials um, to build the, the stations necessary, like, you know, wind turbine plants and solar panels, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and also the fact that they simply do not generate enough energy they cannot compete with fossil fuels in terms of output. Like I think it was Nate Higgins that had on the show that said one barrel of oil equates to 
the work of a single man over four years. And that's why we've seen this huge explosive growth in the economy since we kind of, you know, found the dinosaur bones in, in the earth. Uh, that's why the economy is a thousand times bigger than it was uh, 500 years ago. So, I mean, my concern when I see um, the, how do I put this, the conversation um, about renewables is that very often the necessity of decreasing energy consumption is not um, pointed out at the same time, not obviously in degrowth scholars, but you're kind of seeing a lot of, I mean, at COP26, essentially the, the, the belief that's being peddled is that you can just switch to renewables and we can continue business as usual. Um, how do we adequately bring energy consumption into the uh, conversation politically and internationally? without frightening people that they're essentially going to be plunged back into the dark ages. Because, I mean, surely what we're going to see if we don't sort of dismantle capitalism is the global South being raped for their uh, minerals and metals in the same way that they've been raped for their fossil fuels and for their forests for the past 100 years. Um, unless we start to, as you say, sort of um, restructure the economy as well. How, how do we push all those things forward at the same time so that it doesn't become just as harmful as it is today, but green? Yeah, no, this is such an important question. And there's, there's actually several issues that should be dealt with here. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, I think Nate is right that there's, there's some significant questions about the extent to which um, our, like our existing economy could be powered with the same uh, kind of, you know, patterns of accumulation and expansion, et cetera, with renewable energy. But, but to me, this is actually a lesser interesting part of the story. <laughs> um, okay. uh, so for me, the, the, the key issue here is that the more we grow the economy, we know that there's a close relationship between energy and economic growth, right? The more you grow the economy, the more energy you use. Now, this is a problem because um, as we pursue economic growth and grow energy use at the same time, this makes it more difficult for us to achieve decarbonization of the economy, right? Like it's more difficult to decarbonize a bigger energy system than it is to decarbonize a smaller one. And so um, for rich countries to continue to pursue growth, um, while at the same time trying to decarbonize, it's basically, it makes the task more difficult, right? Like yeah. it's, um, it's sort of, it's like, it's like trying to like, uh, sh you know, shovel sand into a hole that keeps getting bigger uh, or, <laughs> or to run down up escalator or something like that. Like it makes mm -hmm. your task more difficult. Um, and so, it, and so in terms of the sheer speed that is required for decarbonization to stay within carbon budgets for 1.5 or 2 degrees, um, it's essential that rich nations reduce energy demand. Mm -hmm. And, and you know what? The, the, the thing is, this is recognized very widely in, um, in climate modeling. Um, the IPCC reports themselves are very clear about this fact, right? Uh, if you start from the assumption that rich nations should continue to grow a, as usual, then the only way to square that assumption with uh, the Paris Agreement is to bet on uh, mass deployment of speculative negative emissions technologies to get us out of trouble. Mm -hmm. And more and more, politicians are basically relying on that assumption uh, to, to square this contradiction, right, mm -hmm. between growth and decarbonization. Mm -hmm. So if you uh, scale down your assumptions about what can be achieved with, um, with negative emissions technology, uh, more in line with what scientists deem to be feasible and safe, then you're looking at uh, the necessity of actively reducing energy demand in high-income high countries. And that's just kind of the fact we have to face up to. And, and right now, that's just not part of the discourse in, mm -hmm. in rich nations. Now, um, crucially here, when we talk about reducing energy use, I'm not talking about like, let's switch to LEDs, et cetera, right? Like mm -hmm. clearly that is important and does make a difference. 
that the vast majority of the energy that's used in our economy is not, you know, uh, household consumption issues. It's production. It's basically our, it's the capitalist production system, which just devours energy for extraction and production and uh, transportation of material goods, uh, processing them as waste, et cetera, et cetera. It's an energy sucking machine. Uh, and so the less of that uh, unnecessary production we do, the less energy we use and the more quickly we can decarbonize. That's the first thing. Now, even if we uh, assume that problem away, right, <laughs> which is a big assumption, you're still left with another issue, which you alluded to, which is that renewable energy does not come out of thin air, right? Um, of course, the sun and the winds uh, are uh, low impact in and of themselves, clearly, but the materials required to capture and transform uh, solar and wind power into usable energy for us is materially intensive. It requires an extraordinary yeah. amount of material extraction. Now, that's fine. Clearly, we have to transition to renewables as quickly as possible. But given the material impacts of this transition, it is vital to, uh, to abandon the assumption that we should continue to increase energy use at the same time, because that's just going to increase material use, which is already having negative social and ecological effects around the world. Material use is a major driver, is the major yeah. driver of biodiversity collapse. And obviously, the supply chains um, in the global south under multinational corporations are deeply unjust and deeply destructive. Uh, already, the hunt for lithium uh, is, yeah. is yeah. an ecological disaster. You know? so, so the key principle here is simply that um, on, on that front too, uh, yes, we need renewable energy, but crucially, we also just need to consume less energy. And this is, this is precisely the point that degrowth focuses on and elaborates. I've had a couple of people, uh, system scientists on the show, say that um, talking about phasing out fossil fuels is a little bit uh, disingenuous and dangerous because of the requisite fossil fuels um, that we need in order to create uh, a grid of renewable energy around the world. And I had Alice Friedemann say that even calling renewables renewable is misleading because obviously whilst sun and wind is renewable, um, the machines that we need in order to generate electricity from those natural processes require materials. And she says that we need to call them, therefore, rebuildables. Mm. Um, and I noticed that I, I read one of your um, paper, well, I read one of your articles, um, and I noticed that you, you quoted an IPCC, no, a World Bank report um, that modeled the increase in material extraction that would be required to build enough solar and wind utilities um, up to... Uh, up until 2050, which would be half of the world's energy. And then you presumed, okay, if we increased to uh, 2100, et cetera, et cetera, um, you know, we would need, what was it, like a a thousand percent increase in metals for energy storage, for example. Now, I skimmed through that report. Um, and so I have a question for you, because I'm hoping that maybe you'll have the answer, because I couldn't find it. In that model, were they modeling um, the fact that those wind turbine plants and um, solar energy stations would need to be rebuilt every 20 years or not? Oh, Rachel, that's a good question. I'm not actually sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. And I know that the, the, that the World Bank <laughs> model is, um, is, uh, is one among several models that have explored these questions uh, more recently. Mm. And so I think that the World Bank one, I think, is from 2018. So... Um, we'd have to take a look at more recent models and see. But, but you raise an important point here, um, which is that there's a lot of energy and materials required in sort of continually regenerating the renewable grid, as it were, <laughs> um, that has to be taken yeah. into account. So I'm not sure of the figures on that, unfortunately, but, um, but yeah, that's, that's certainly an issue to pay attention to. 
I'll, uh, I'll tweet it out and see if anybody can get back to us on that. <laughs> or maybe just read through the report with a fine tooth comb. <laughs> um, right, let's, let's get into um, eco-socialism, really, because I'm really interested in the work that you've done that is about social justice. Um, and you write a lot about um, climate job guarantees and how, the, you know, about increasing quality of life, which is also therefore reducing uh, precarity, which, despite how privileged we are in the West, is a huge problem for working classes and increasingly middle classes. So what, how could we restructure the economy in a way that would provide people with a, a purpose and with access to what they need through um, a pro-ecological uh, e- economy? Mm. Yeah, no, this is, this is so important. And this is, this is really kind of the crux of degrowth scholarship, actually, because mm. um, obviously what degrowth is calling for is a planned reduction of excess energy and resource use. In other words, the parts of the economy that are not necessary for human flourishing therefore to focus instead on kind of the human-centered economy instead, um, right? Now, and, and in this respect, yeah. it's fundamentally different from a recession. And I cannot emphasize this enough. We have different words for these things because they're fundamentally different phenomena, mm. right? So a recession is what happens when a growth-addicted capitalist economy like our own fails to achieve sufficient growth um, and basically things fall apart as a consequence. It's a very dangerous machine where if it doesn't get enough growth, things start to collapse and it's extremely destructive. It ruins people's lives. Uh, poverty rates shoot up, hunger goes up, homelessness goes up, inequality rockets, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a catastrophe, right? Um, recognizing that, degrowth calls for a shift to a different kind of economy, one that can deliver high levels of human well-being without the need for additional growth and indeed uh, while scaling down excess resource and energies. How is that possible? Um, uh, the key principle here is this, right? Um, one of the reasons that we presently cannot uh, talk about scaling down unnecessary forms of production, even if we agree, like, we, we could scale down commercial air travel, we could scale, scale down SUVs or industrial beef or whatever it might be, we might be able to, to achieve consensus on that. Um, and yet we'll still be worried about it because as you scale down that kind of production, what about jobs? People are going to lose yeah. their jobs, unemployment will rise, et cetera. So degrowth scholarship proposes a very simple solution to this, which actually has been proposed by progressive economists, uh, economists for more than 100 years, which is simply to shorten the working week Wow! and uh, distribute uh, necessary labor more evenly, right? So as our economy requires uh-huh. less labor to produce the things that we actually need, then you distribute that necessary labor, uh, like remaining necessary labor more evenly by shortening the working week. Um, and as part of this, we can introduce something like a climate job guarantee. Um, and I call for this simply because it's a way of mobilizing labor around the, the crucial uh, collective projects that we need in order to transition to an ecological economy, right? So um, installing renewable energy capacity, retrofitting homes, regenerating ecosystems, et cetera, et cetera. A climate job guarantee would allow anyone who wants to to train and participate in those collective projects with a dignified living wage doing uh, crucial, socially useful work. Um, and that's very powerful. And, uh, and these two policies together, this idea of a shorter working week and a climate job guarantee, would immediately end unemployment permanently. Um, and, that, and that's important because that uh, clears up the political logjam, right? It allows us to, like, once the question of employment and livelihoods is off the table, it allows us to have a conversation about what sectors of the economy we can scale down without worrying about how that might affect livelihoods and employment and so on, right? 
Can I jump in here quickly and ask, because obviously it was Henry Ford that introduced the five-day working week because he figured out if people have more time off, then they're going to spend more money and i.e. buy his cars. Um, what is the model between if we reduce the, the, the working week um, and then the impact that that would have on consumption? Because surely that's yeah. another thing where it has to be double-pronged, right? Where you're already in the process of decarbonizing the economy and shifting the values of the economy rather than just giving people more time off essentially immediately right right no so of course um of course people only consume what is being produced right and and this is actually right. why i think it's important uh um in the degrowth scholarship that there's been this uh, a shift from traditional environmentalist thought which focuses on cons on consumption of individuals right to mm -hmm. a more systemic analysis which focuses on the production system and so by scaling mm -hmm. down excess forms of production socially less necessary forms of production you deal with that problem already right uh, and so, yeah. um, and so, the, and, and so that's really important. It's not like we are taking more time off in the existing economy, uh, where we're spending the same amount of money on the same kinds mm. of products that are out there, right? There's a change. Yeah. Uh, we're no longer buying SUVs. We're no longer, uh, subject to the, uh, arbitrariness of planned obsolescence, right? Our products last longer, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. So, so what happens in this kind of situation is that, um, the additional time is not, is not deployed in consumption. It's, uh, it's expended in conviviality, in care, in relationships, mm. in creativity, in learning, in maintenance, and so on. Um, and what's interesting also is that we have, we have really strong uh, empirical evidence, actually, on this from economists like Juliet Shore, um, who, uh, who point out that uh, a shorter working week dramatically improves things like uh, well-being, um, you know, mental health outcomes, physical health outcomes, gender equality. Uh, while at the same time reducing emissions and also reducing uh, consumption, uh, which mm. is remarkable. Like when people have more time, they actually, it turns out, even in the existing economy, consume less. Wow. Uh, and that's a remarkable finding. Um, and the reason basically is because uh, when, we lead, when we lead these kind of frenetic work-oriented lives, we have very little time to, uh, say, cook, you know, cook for our families or uh maintain something that could be fixed instead we go for cheaper fixes like ordering food in or uh, uh getting rid of the bookshelf and buying a new one etc cetera, etc cetera. Yeah. Yeah. um and so uh, some really interesting positive effects emerge from uh from shortening the working week uh so it's this powerful win-win policy that is um is quite central to degrowth uh thinking that is fascinating Oh, God, you know, I'm having one of those moments which happens in every single interview, which is like, oh, it's, so it's already been modeled. It's already been figured out. Why aren't we implementing it? <laughs> Why isn't this happening already? Jesus, if we can yeah. do good for the planet and increase mental health and well-being, like we have win-win situations. What is going on? Why is it not in process? Oh, I mean, yes, who, clearly, who, yeah. who are we up against? <laughs> well, yeah, no, this is interesting because... Um, uh, you know, I mean, there's several other degrowth policies that are key uh, in this space, which I'd, I'd like to discuss, and then we can talk oh, about, oh, um, yeah, go on. you know, basically why people are against it or, or why mm. elites are against it, effectively. Mm. Um, the other crucial one, in addition to a shorter working week and a climate job guarantee, is, um, is universal basic services, right? So the observation that degrowth scholarship makes is that, um, uh, is that by decommodifying the the core social sector of the economy right healthcare education obviously but also housing transportation uh energy water internet like the things that people need 
uh, in order to live decent, dignified lives. By mm -hmm. decommodifying uh, those things, you enable people to access the resources they need to live well without needing high levels of GDP in order to do so. Okay, so so think about it. Um, if you're living on thirty thousand dollars in the USA, then mm -hmm. you're poor <laughs> because you cannot afford medical care. You cannot afford to send your kids to university. Uh, there's no public transportation, and so you're probably having to buy a car and uh, commute, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Mm -hmm. If you're living on that same amount of money in a place where um, healthcare, housing, uh, education, transit are decommodified, then your welfare purchasing power is much higher. And so um, mm -hmm. you can improve people's lives without growth simply by decommodifying the core social goods that people need, right? Uh, right. Thereby improving the welfare purchasing power of existing income. And this is extremely powerful. Um, and furthermore, we know that, uh, that when it comes to the determinants of social well-being and social indicators, what matters is not GDP as such, but rather people's access to these core social goods. Um, that is the main determinants of human well-being, and that's what we should focus our economies on. Um, and so what this all amounts to is kind of this de-enclosure of the commons, if you will. So if you mm. look at the history of capitalism, it's all organized around enclosing the commons, uh, producing an artificial scarcity uh, of access yeah. to employment and livelihoods and resources so that people have no yeah. choice but to work in a competitive economy, producing value and profits for capital in order to eke by, right? Um, and that's yeah. basically the engine of perpetual expansion and accumulation. If you decommodify that core economy and take the question of, um, of employment off the table, then suddenly um, you're liberated from that uh, constant pressure to, uh, to produce uh, and expand solely for the sake of capital accumulation. And that's an extremely powerful antidote to the uh, irrational headlong rush of our existing economy toward destruction. <laughs> Um, yeah. So what's exciting is that these policies, um, you know, a shorter working week, climate job guarantee, universal basic services, living wages, et cetera, all, are all extremely popular everywhere that they've been polled in high-income countries. Uh, people want these things, strong majorities, you know, 70-plus uh, percent. And, and that's interesting. So, like, these core degrowth policies are wildly popular. Um, the obstacle to achieving a kind of transition to eco-socialism is, is not ordinary people, contrary to the dominant discourse of, oh, no one's going to accept this. Rather, it is simply the mm -hmm. elites who benefit so prodigiously from the existing structure of the economy will fight us with everything they have, right? Um, and the mm -hmm. key weapon in their arsenal is this claim they peddle every day, which is that economic growth is necessary for human well-being right? We know that's not true. We know that we can have an economy that delivers human well-being without growth. And it's essential to attack yeah. that ideology. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's such a bizarre uh, claim. You would think that they would come up with a better claim, like a better slogan, because it's just, it's so untrue. Uh, you know, if you look at, I think um, you quoted the, the well-being or the quality of life in Costa Rica, um, Cuba, these kinds of places. I mean, Cuba's a great one because it's it's communist. Um, so there's no uh, impetus on growth. And yet they are just as well, if not better off um, than the United States, which is the most growth dominant uh, and obsessed nation, arguably, in the world. 
So, I mean, you would think that they would have come up with something a little bit more imaginative and inventive by now. And yet I think it shows the, the power that they have in the discourse to keep peddling out utter falsities and to not be challenged. And that just one challenge doesn't sort of shatter their whole illusion immediately. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Yeah, so you can point to Costa Rica and Cuba and so on. But if you want to stay closer to home, yeah. then you can also look at countries like Spain, right? So if you look at the U.S. versus Spain, just for an example, mm -hmm. the U.S., of course, one of the richest countries in the world, uh, GDP per capita of $65,000. Compare mm -hmm. that to Spain. Spain has 55% less GDP per capita, right? So less right. than half, no? And yet it outperforms the U.S. on every key social indicator with a life expectancy that is more than five years longer, right? Mm. Uh, one of the highest in the world. So <laughs> this is extraordinary. How, you know, how is it possible <laughs> that, um, that this could be achieved? The answer is quite simple with, you know, because Spain has a universal healthcare system, um, you know, is, is less commodified than the USA. And so people have access to the things they need to live decent lives. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, income is shared more fairly. So it's quite straightforward, actually. The recipe is straightforward. And Spain is not an outlier. There are 40 countries that outperform the USA with significantly less GDP per capita. And that should be a strong reminder to us of what, of what is possible. Uh, so, yeah, that's crucial. But look, I think, that the, um, I think the reason that the growth narrative is so, is so powerful is simply because of the framing, right? Like, growth just sounds so good. It sounds so natural. Mm. It sounds like, I mean, you know, children grow, plants grow, we grow in knowledge and maturity, et cetera, et cetera. And so by tapping into that idea, uh, into that framing, into that narrative, um, then they're able to sell anything that generates growth as good, right? Um, and they will stand at the podium mm. every day and defend uh, whatever project is going on the grounds that it produces growth. And uh, they will assume that all of us will buy into the idea that growth will always be good for us, right? And mm -hmm. so, yeah, so, I mean, look, there's a, this is an ideological terrain, ultimately, and it's important to be able to challenge uh, that core ideological claim. Um, and that's effectively what degrowth uh, does. Can we talk a little bit more about maybe the historical ideology of it? Because obviously the, the first word that comes to mind when discussing these disastrous policies um, of constant growth and expansion is, is capitalism. Um, and yet, arguably, we do have a long history of, yes, collaboration, but also expansion and growth. So what is it in our social organization that engenders um, systems such as capitalism to become dominant? And what can we do about it to minimize that um, as we look to degrow and decarbonize the economy? Yeah, so I think that um, the key thing for most people to understand is, uh, is to have a clear idea of what capitalism actually is, right? Mm -hmm. uh, most people will say, oh, you know, when they hear capitalism, they think, oh, that is a system of markets and trade, uh, maybe even businesses, et cetera. Um, and that all sounds innocent enough on the face of it. You know, what could possibly be, be wrong with markets and trade? Um, but in reality, markets and trade, of course, existed for thousands of years before capitalism, yeah. uh, right? Capitalism is only 500 years old. Yeah. Um, so what distinguishes capitalism from all other economic systems uh, is that it is a system um, that is organized and dependent on perpetual expansion. And the point right. of perpetual expansion is not in order to meet some concrete human need or use value, right? But rather to generate and accumulate profit, 
okay, or what okay. Marx called exchange value. Yeah. Uh, I mean, effectively, profit emerges from exchange value transactions. Yeah. Uh, so in order to do that, in order to have um, a perpetually increasing accumulation of profits uh, and a perpetual expansion of this exchange value system, the only way to do this is to cheapen labor and nature yeah. Yeah. as much as possible, to depress yeah. the prices of labor and nature. And so it's, it should come as no surprise that's a system that is organized around perpetually depressing the prices and cheapening labor and nature um, generates ecological crises and inequality, right? It is literally yeah. baked into our system. So when left yeah. to its own devices, that will always be the result. Um, and that's effectively what we're, what, I mean, we're in the throes of this, of this crisis right now with extraordinary levels of global inequality and an ecological crisis mm -hmm. unfolding around us. Um, and we have to be able to point to the fundamental driver of this, which is the capitalist economy. And, and, and it means we have to be able to imagine our way to a post-capitalist economy. You know, one mm -hmm. that is, again, I mean, very simply, uh, uh, focused on meeting human needs uh, within planetary boundaries mm -hmm. rather than focused on, uh, you know, perpetual expansion and accumulation for the sake of profits. It's quite simple. It seems to me that one of the, and we can go back, we can go back and discuss sort of the the capitalists that are uh, blocking the degrowth progress. Um, but it seems to me one of the most insidious ways in which they're managing that is by talking about uh, how to make an economy green without talking about limiting growth. Um, and in that green economy, we are essentially seeing the commodification of climate change, which is shocking, uh, I think, to anybody with uh, half a mind. You know, Shell, for example, is peddling out its nature-based solutions and talking about buying up pieces of rainforest around the world in order to protect it, which most people aren't aware of. But that means um, if a forest is going to be protected um, by a multinational corporation, it means that no ing indigenous people can be on that land already because therefore it's not credit to the green economy. Um, so there's massive fears amongst the indigenous communities all around the world that this is going to be used as another land grab. Um, what other ways are you seeing this um, push to a green economy take away from the degrowth method um, or system? The, there's so many ways this manifests. I mean, again, let's, let's mm. talk briefly about, about negative emissions. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Right. This is, I mean, this is the, the savior technology. <laughs> yeah. This is the savior technology that everybody mm. is, that everyone is hoping will sort of yank us out of trouble just in time. Yeah. Uh, and um, if you look at what is proposed, it's extraordinary, actually. So, so the main negative emissions technology is called BECS, Bioenergy with Carbon Capture and Storage. And the idea here is that uh, we will um, grow massive uh, biofuel plantations, three times the size of India. Um, and we Where? will then, and these biofuel plantations will suck carbon out of the atmosphere as the, as the plants grow. Um, we'll harvest them for, uh, for energy stations. We'll burn them for power and then we'll capture the carbon that comes out of the stacks effectively and, uh, store it underground, right? Voila, you have a negative emissions technology. Um, now what's interesting is that, is this main question? I mean, there's several problems here. Uh, one, of course, is that this technology has never been scaled. There's no evidence that it is viable at scale. Um, mm -hmm. It relies on massive monoculture plantations, which will drive 
um, which will drive further biodiversity collapse, further deforestation, uh, will take away from food crops, et cetera, et cetera. But let me point to this issue, which is that where is that land going to come from? I guarantee you it's not going to come from southern England. It's not going to come from uh, from Belgium. No, Mm -hmm. this is land that is uh, going to be appropriated from the landmass of the global south. Uh, Already, that is the assumption in the existing models, right? Uh, And this is extraordinary. The idea is that there will be an imperial appropriation of land from the global south uh, for the sake of maintaining the north's energy privilege. Again, uh, levels of per capita energy that are wildly in excess of what is required to meet human needs. Uh, And and this is a totally untenable, uh, deeply morally problematic assumption. And yet it's literally, it is the main... It is the main assumption right now, um, and most people are not aware of this. Uh, and it's, it's just important that we be able to point that out. Where is it being discussed? In which rooms, with which people? Well, so for example, if, if you pay attention to, um, to, uh, to John Kerry's discourse, right? He showed up in London a few months ago um, after, after Biden's inauguration, and um, he was asked about, his, uh, about the U.S. climate plan. Because they have these big ambitious thing, you know, uh, uh, pledges to bring emissions down to zero by some uh, particular date in the middle of the century, et cetera. And he was very candid. Uh-huh. And on TV, he said, "Look, in response to an interviewer who asked him, uh, who asked him, how do you plan to do that?" He said, "Look, um, the majority of these emissions reductions will come from technology that does not yet exist." <laughs> um, and this was a very candid acknowledgement of the fact that they don't have a plan. Uh, yeah. for bringing emissions down as fast as they need to go. They are relying on literally fairy tale technology that does not exist um, and which, if implemented, would be uh, quite uh, destructive. Now, this is important because um, if, for whatever reason, that technology fails to materialize in the way and to the scale expected, mm-hmm. uh, then we are stuck uh, in a hothouse trajectory from which it will be impossible to escape, right? Once we yeah. overshoot these climate budgets, um, there's, no, uh, there's no pulling that back down on civilizational timescales. Uh, yeah. So we're in trouble for a very long time. And, and this is why climate scientists routinely say this is an extremely risky gamble with the future of humanity and with all of life on Earth and should not be tolerated. Uh, effectively, all of it is a ruse to avoid the hard question which is that we have to reduce emissions uh, mm-hmm. very, very quickly in rich countries reaching zero by around 2030 or 2035, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody is presently planning for that kind of, uh, of decarbonization. And the only way to achieve decarbonization uh, with that kind of speed is with degrowth. Um, mm. And it's, it's crucial that we start having that conversation. Otherwise, we'll be, we'll be stuck in this kind of fairy tale land until it's just too late. There seems to be uh, just pure fantasy around the the mainstream discourse, which is either that, um, yeah, technology is going to save us, techno-optimism, or that we are going to plunge back into the dark ages, which Boris Johnson said on television uh, when he was in Rome just before COP26. Um, Do you have figures on how we could reduce emissions um, and energy consumption to still live with dignity? Uh, that will provide people with perhaps a sense of uh, ease or comfort that they are not going to, I don't know, have to learn to farm in a decade's time, <laughs> that, that there is a happy medium. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. 
this is really important. I mean, immediately when you um, when you propose let's reduce energy, people will say, "Oh, you're basically asking us to go back to the caves, etc." This is utterly ridiculous. Mm. Um, and again, the 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 key observation here is that um, most of the excess energy that is used in the economy is uh, is used for the sake of corporate uh, expansion and elite accumulation, mm. right? So mm. um, we need to focus on. Uh, cutting that energy and so that we can focus energy on uh, what's needed for human well-being and livelihoods uh, and flourishing, okay? Now, importantly, we have strong empirical evidence on this. Recent research by Julia Steinberger, professor at, uh, she was at Leeds when she did this research with her team there. Uh, she's a lead author of the IPCC. Um, her team found that uh, um, we can provide energy sufficient to meet human needs at a high standard for a, a global population of 10 billion people, so much more than we presently have, wow. with 60% less energy than the world economy presently uses. So this is a scenario where you, um, you eradicate energy poverty permanently around the world, where everyone has access to high-quality uh, um, healthcare, uh, education, uh, housing, heating, cooling, refrigeration, transportation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, with uh, a fraction of the energy that we presently use, right? This is the power of a shift towards an economy that provisions for human needs rather than diverting energy to capital accumulation. So it's very exciting what can be achieved, actually, uh, um, with, with such a shift. Um, and should not, I mean, should not inspire fear at all. Rather, it's yeah. quite clear that we can improve. Again, most people would, would be better off in such a scenario. The people that will that will lose out are um, are elites who enjoy such extraordinary energy privilege right now. They're clearly yeah. going to have to uh, have quite fundamental changes to the way that they uh, they live in the world, uh, yeah. and that's okay, right? We we don't want yeah. to live in a world with such extraordinary inequality. It is corrosive and destructive uh, for all sorts of reasons, anyways. That's amazing. So essentially, you're saying that um, we could maintain, a, 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 in fact, we could have a better quality of life with people still, and not everybody having to farm, like people would still be able to have access to food without having to grow it in their new backyard, which is, I don't know, the nearest forest that they found and <laughs> hunkered down in. Yes. But at the same time, in nations that are typically crippled by poverty and inequality, they would, for the first time, have access to those same uh, human dignities as well. Yes, that's right. Exactly. Good um, God. So it really gives you a sense for, I mean, for me, what I take from this kind of research is simply that, um, that the existing economy is extremely wasteful in its use of energy. Uh, mm. I mean, so little is actually, is actually devoted to meeting human needs. I mean, we live in a world, right, where something like 60% of the world's population uh, cannot meet basic human needs. I mean, this is, this is wild. This is the result of 500 years of capitalism where we've had extraordinary uh, growth and extraordinarily productive economy, and yet more than half of the world's population uh, lives in conditions of poverty. It's wild. Yeah. Uh, and it's not because there's not enough. It's because what there is is appropriated at the top. Uh, and so this is ultimately the pattern of uh, distribution that we must challenge, ultimately. Again, this is uh, core to degrowth scholarship. It's basically a call for... Uh, for energy justice, for resource justice. Mm. That's fantastic. Um, I, I've, I've said a couple of times on the show that um, I think that the climate crisis is a marketing problem. 
because of this fantasy of either, you know, uh, technology is going to save us or we're going to slide back into the dark ages. Not enough is being discussed in mainstream discourse. Of course, this is a whole field and you and your colleagues are working on this day in, day out. But people don't recognize that reductions and a a social transformation could inherently be beneficial for them. And I wonder if it is because of the 500 years of capitalist ideology, which essentially, growth is essentially like... um, it's the American dream, isn't it? It says to each individual that like, you might be lucky. You might right. be the one that gets everything that you want. Um, and I think that maybe I don't know, I've not read any data on this, but that may be why so many sort of, you know, your layman of the world, myself included, uh, why we are prone to, to hang on to the idea of growth, not just because change is uncomfortable, I think. I hate when people say that because all humanity does all the time is change. Mm. But because it's that last vestige of individuality upon which we have built our Western culture Mm. uh, and shifting to something more social, that's the difficult um, change in which maybe, I don't know, maybe people feel like they will disappear. Getting a bit philosophical here now, I do apologize. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. I think that's, yeah, I think that's quite possible. Uh, I think also that um, it's also possible that people on some level recognize the extent to which uh, de- you know, dependent like dependencies on growth that that permeate our existing economy uh, do make them vulnerable, right? In the sense of, like, people are aware that if the economy stops growing, then unemployment goes up, uh, mm-hmm, and they don't yeah. want to be stuck in that kind of situation. Which is why you get labor unions, for example, mm-hmm. which um, which will line up with capital, calling for more growth because they see this as the only way to achieve decent employment and decent wages and so on, right? Oh, that's um, and that's why it's so important to, to point out that growth is not necessary uh, um, to achieve those objectives. We can achieve those objectives right now by shortening the working week, introducing living wage policy, distributing income more fairly, and establishing universal basic services. Those are the things that actually matter, right? Um, mm. So we have to, yeah, I mean, for, for too long, we've just bought this narrative that we must kind of align with capital's uh, call for growth for our own good somehow, even right. though uh, in opinion polls, people routinely say that they prioritize human well-being and ecological stability over growth or even at the expense of growth. If any other trajectory threatens their livelihoods, they will turn against it uh, for mm. good reason. And this is why it's so important to secure the question of livelihoods. This is why uh, um, a just transition has to be at the very core of what we're talking about here. Um, and this brings me to a point that I want to raise, um, which is that people will often ask me, will there be enough income in a degrowth scenario to meet everyone's needs? Mm-hmm. And the answer to that is yes, literally by definition. And this is quite an exciting point. Um, mm-hmm. So what people should understand is that income uh, is simply the obverse of all of the prices in the economy. Okay, So it's literally an accounting identity. So GDP as income is simply the, um, the obverse of the total prices that are uh, of the products produced in the economy, okay? Right. Now, what that means is that there's always exactly enough money, exactly enough income to buy the things that the economy produces. Mm-hmm. If we were to scale down sectors of the economy that we all agree we do not need, again, let's say SUVs and private jets, okay? Mm-hmm. You scale that down, there will still... Uh, by definition, be exactly as much income as is necessary to buy all of the other things the economy does produce and which we do need, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so there's never a shortage of income, by definition. <laughs> oh, the of only, course. The only question is how is the income distributed? 
right? Yeah. As long as the income is, is distributed fairly, then uh, everybody will have access to the purchasing power they need to buy everything that they require, uh, literally by definition. And so this idea that we will somehow be uh, poorer in a degrowth scenario is precisely the fallacy, right? Uh, mm. As long as you can imagine an, an economy that has public transportation instead of SUVs, then mm. you're imagining a degrowth economy, right? Where you can access yeah. uh, your need for transit without the need for uh, the income required to buy SUVs on a population level. So it's quite, it's quite um, encouraging, really. It's quite liberating to think of the economy that way. Um, what actually matters is what we are producing, whether those things meet human needs, and whether people have access to those things. That's it. Right. Well, I mean, I'm sold. Uh, so what's next? What, what do we do? I mean, who, who are the politicians that are talking about this? Who can we look to? Who should we be voting in? Um, should we be calling for referendums? Like, how do we actually enact this? Because obviously there are huge power structures in place that are trying to stop it. Mm. Yeah, look, I mean, there's actually a, uh, there's quite a lot of interest in this among um, uh, certain progressive political factions uh, in, mm -hmm. uh, in Europe and even a little bit in the United States. Um, so, so that's exciting. I mean, clearly, it's not mainstream in political circles. And mm -hmm. as a result, it's important that we have, I mean, crucially, what's, what's going to be required here is building the social movements necessary to force political incumbents to change course or to mm -hmm. unseat them and, uh, and replace them with the kinds of uh, political formations that we, that we require, right? Now, mm -hmm. how do we get there? This is going to require more than the environmentalist movement alone. Okay, so mm -hmm. degrowth thinking is kind of taken off in the environmentalist movement. Um, uh, but here's the thing is that that movement is not strong enough. It may be strong enough to change discourse about climate, for example, which it has successfully done over the past couple of years. But while they can shut down bridges in central London, uh, they cannot mobilize the kind of political power that's necessary to um, to force politicians to change course on fundamental policy measures uh, mm -hmm. or to unseat incumbents, right? Um, the only way to do that is to build alliances with the labor movements um, mm -hmm. and uh, with working class formations. And this is what, uh, I mean, this is my message to every environmentalist or climate activist is that is the crucial step for 2022, 2023, and going forward this decade. Um, without that kind of alliance, between environmentalists and labor, um, there's just no way that the movement will be strong enough to, to win the transition we need. And that kind of alliance will not happen on its own. It requires door-to-door uh, -door organizing. It requires mm -hmm. um, building solidarities. It requires uh, hard conversations. It requires um, also a fundamental shift in the labor movements away from their existing growthism, as I described before, yeah. towards core eco-social demands. Uh, and with that in place, you get, uh, you get the environmentalist movements, um, backing the, the, the demands of the labor movements and the labor movement backing the demands of the environmentalist movements and you win. That's the recipe, I think. And, uh, that's what we'll need to pursue in the coming years. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like I'm, I'm on board. Uh, I, I think that. It, it sounds um, obvious when you say it, but obviously the environmentalist movement comes under a lot of flack for its middle classism. And part yes. of that, I think, is, you know, comparing sort of the global precarity of ecological breakdown with the individual precarity of the, the working classes with laborers yes, who, yes. you know, don't have time typically 
um, or security to think about these things. So totally. yeah, as you said, there's going to have to be a whole other language kind of construed in order to be able to meet each other halfway and recognize that uh, the goals are the same um, yeah. and we can meet them together. Yeah, but... no, absolutely. I mean, look, one of the reasons that's, uh, I mean, it's true, the environmental movement totally alienates working class people. Yeah. Um, and the reason is, one of the reasons is because they have this discourse around uh, consumption around individual behavior and so on. Yeah. Uh, and there's just no way that working class uh, communities can relate to that. They're trying to make mm. ends meet, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, a huge proportion of the population in the US and the UK literally live in poverty. <laughs> mm -hmm. So a discourse mm -hmm. on consuming less is not going to fly with them. What we need is, and this is what degrowth brings to the table, is a direct attack on the production system, right? We have a production system that's organized around elite accumulation, and that's what we need to change. Uh, that's, that's the system that's driving both inequality, impoverishment, and ecological breakdown. And we need all forces on board to change that. Um, and I think that's the kind of narrative that the environmentalist movement needs to shift to, or otherwise, mm -hmm. honestly, risk irrelevance. Uh, if justice yeah. is not part of their conversation, then uh, we lose. It's as simple as that. Is the social justice movement interested in degrowth? It would seem like a no-brainer, right? Yeah, I think I think so. Uh, and, you know, increasingly this is, I mean, you'll see this discourse in, you know, DiEM25, um, also in uh, Democratic Socialists of America, and so on. So that's very exciting. Uh, crucially, also, uh, I should mention, and this is just so important, is that mm -hmm. um, degrowth has uh, a strong anti-imperialist orientation, right? Yeah. In fact, um, in fact, uh, degrowth thinking emerges from the anti-colonial movement in the global south in the 1950s and 60s, uh, where, where mm -hmm. they recognized that growthism in the global north was a major driver of immiseration and appropriation in the global south. And so, um, and so the demand for degrowth has always been on the lips of, uh, of social movements in the global south. Um, and you can see this, for example, in the People's Agreement of Cochabamba, um, which I encourage your listeners to read. Uh, so, so, you know, so here again, I think that it's crucial that we build these uh, transnational alliances as well, uniting with social movements in the global south that have been calling for this kind of shift as part of a broader demand for decolonization. Yeah. Uh, so these are the, yeah, these are the, the sort of constellations and alliances that need to emerge. I think it's really interesting because the, the fracturing of the left is, I think, you know, one of the main reasons that very little progress is, is being made on the ground. Um, because there seems to be, like, the agendas put on the table seem so disparate that uh, people can't meet together to mm. recognize that the, the, the goals are the same. Um, yes. So I, th I think it's fascinating that, A, for one, that this kind of research or this kind of discourse, as you say, started in the 50s and 60s. And that should be a warning to everybody at the power structures in play trying to keep um, this discourse out of the, the mainstream and mm. to block awareness. Even, you know, I just realized the other day that Limits, Limits to Growth, the book, was published in the 70s. And it's like, it's, right, it's half a century later. You know, yeah. the, it should be self-evident by now. Um, but I think anything, like the, the left needs to unify and the left needs a good marketing strategy and to bring the environmentalist movement, the social justice movement, uh, climate reparations, labor, all of that together. I mean, that seem, would seem to me as the quickest way um, to dismantle the system of elite power because i mean mm. ultimately we are the majority 
and it is mad <laughs> that we That's are right. the majority and we are so terribly squeezed by such a small percentage of the population. It's extraordinary, actually, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that I think you're absolutely right. Like the key is to recognize that all forms of oppression and exploitation are connected. Yeah. Uh, and that should be the basis of our organizing. Uh, and, you know, realizing that is extremely powerful. Yeah. What a fantastic note to end on. Jason, uh, my final question for you then would be, who would you like to platform? Ah, so um, there's three people I'd recommend. One of whom I mentioned actually in the in my in our discussion, which is uh, Professor Julia Steinberger. Yeah. Um, if you haven't had her yet, uh, I've been I've been if you know uh, Julia, I've been trying to get you for a while. Uh, I think you're the third person to platformer. We've, but she's last time I spoke to her, she said she was under magma, and I believe her. So. Oh gosh, yeah. Um, another person is uh, is Vandana Shiva who um, has been uh, a key proponent of many of these ideas um, from, uh, from her work in India. Uh, mm -hmm. I would also recommend Yorgos Kallis, who was the person who introduced degrowth scholarship to the English-speaking world. Uh, and he's a colleague of mine. And then also Max Isle, who, um, who is a degrowth fellow traveler and who brings a really powerful uh, kind of anti-imperialist perspective um, to his work on social and ecological justice and degrowth. So um, I, I've listed four now, not three. So uh, fantastic! <laughs> I hope you're able to find at least one of them. Brilliant. Jason, thank you so much for your time. This was absolutely fascinating and crucial. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, Rachel. If you want to learn more about Jason's work and get access to his books, I've put links to his website over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast. If you liked the episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you love it, the best way to support the project is by choosing a paid subscription at planetcritical.com or on the Planet Critical Patreon page. Interview transcripts are available for subscribers and patrons. A huge thank you to the Planet Critical supporters. This work just wouldn't be possible without you. Thank you all for listening. See you next week.